You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And this morning we're looking together at chapter 6. And verses 1 through 7, you'll find this on page 914 of the Pew Bible. And we're looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts 6, 1 through 7, hear the word of God. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, at the beginning of this book, we found the commission of the disciples, where Jesus said to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And with that, Luke sets forth the theme for the entire book of Acts. It outlines for us the structure of how he's going to chronicle the spread of the gospel. Accordingly, in chapters 1 through 5, he dealt with the church's witness in Jerusalem. Then in chapters 6 through 12, he will report to us on her work in Judea and Samaria. Finally, in chapters 13 through 28, he will show us how the gospel extends to the end of the earth. And of course, at that time, the city of Rome was the capital of the empire. And so at the end of Acts, we find Paul is in Rome preaching the gospel and teaching Christ with freedom. Well, at the start of chapter 6, the Christian witness spreads among the Greek-speaking Jews. And the influence of the gospel is beginning to be felt in Judea and Samaria. The early Christian community has been experiencing tremendous growth. As the kingdom advanced, people are being converted from all over the region. And as often happens with rapid increase of growth, administrative problems arise. 
Many of the Hellenists, which simply means Greek-speaking Jews, have been converted to Christianity, thankfully. They'd come from foreign countries, and they had made the great discovery of Christ. And this we would expect, since the gospel was rapidly advancing from Jerusalem. But the difficulty arose because Hellenistic widows were being overlooked. The daily distribution. It refers to the allocation of the church's food and money. We learned in chapter 4 how the early church acquired these resources. It said there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What a remarkable thing. The generosity of the early Christians was stupendous. And in time, the weekly collection was taken up as a way to help others within the church. Those, with, or those who were without means of their own were sustained. They could eat. They could pay the rent. And this is especially true of widows who had no way of supporting themselves. In the ancient Jewish society, widows were particularly needy and dependent. It was a man's duty to provide, according to Jewish doctrine. Women were, that who were left alone were without support. And thus, over and over again in the Old Testament, we're told that widows and orphans were to be the objects of charity. The three-year tithe, for example, was laid up in part for widows and orphans in Deuteronomy 14. Farmers were commanded to leave their gleanings for such needy people. Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Isaiah 1, Isaiah tells Israel, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. James tells us that pure religion, sincere Christianity, is in part to visit widows and orphans. And as an aside, doesn't this imply that an uncharitable Christian really is no Christian at all? I think that's a valid inference. The Christian faith is a religion, we're told, that works by love. Everyone is an object of love, but especially those who are most vulnerable in our society. We preach the gospel, yes, but we also share the gifts of God's bounty. And every week we take up the collection in part to help the needy. The Lord's money is used by our deacons as a way of extending mercy. Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Unqualified. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. The proud, ambitious world may care little for widows and orphans, but God has a special relationship for them and with them. And he is especially concerned about them as well as missionaries. John says they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You see, God will provide for his own, and he gives us the privilege of joining in with him. So the Hellenists understood all of this, and they're complaining that their widows are being ignored in the daily distribution. 
And some have said, some commentators in fact, that the Jerusalem Jews were deliberately neglecting the foreign Jews. I doubt that was the case. I don't think this was a conscious act or some sort of malicious scheme. Perhaps some difference in language or customs was a contributing factor. For whatever reason, these poor Christian women were being neglected. And so the apostles gathered together the church to work out a solution. And I think it's important to note how they sought congregational input. Since they had the authority, they could have solved the problem themselves. But there are times when God's people as a whole need to deliberate about something. And this is especially true in matters that affect the life of a church, such as electing those who rule over us. In this case, creating the office and appointing men to fill it was a big deal. And so when all were assembled, the apostles sought comprehensive participation and they were to select seven men. Seven men, wise, well-respected, and full of the Spirit. Because the apostles could not afford to take on an added responsibility. Great is the burden of caring for widows and managing the temporal affairs of the church. It's great. It's a very important task. Members and families depended on this. And so the apostles, devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, called upon the church to select these men. And the ministry of the word and the ministry of mercy would work together in concentrated collaboration to benefit the church. And so the congregation selected seven spirit-filled men to serve as deacons, they would be officially ordained to serve tables, which refers to food and money, and to them would be entrusted the administration and the distribution of all the church's resources. Meeting the needs of the rapidly growing congregations was a lot of work. And I think the importance of this ministry of mercy is evident from the qualifications given here. Very important qualifications. Must be of good repute well spoken of and approved by the church. The same word is used in 3 John when it says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. Such a good reputation is the fruit of a godly life. So the men had acquired good names among the people of God. They were free from scandal, esteemed as men of integrity. And such a reputation of being trustworthy is earned only over time. You've heard the saying, forgiveness is free, trust is earned. And the seven who were chosen were seasoned Christians of proven character. They were divinely called to serve and to sympathize. And if they had been lesser men, it would have given occasion for the enemies of Christ to blaspheme. So men of good repute. Secondly, full of the Spirit, or believers in whom dwells the Spirit of Christ. Only those who are true children of God have this Spirit. The Christian is controlled by the Spirit's influence in his thoughts and his words and his deeds. And there's evidence in his daily life that the Spirit is using his sanctifying power to change him. 
and it's a non-negotiable. The deacons must be men full of the Spirit. And it's not only that they must resist the temptations associated with their office, money at their fingertips, but their office requires a servant's heart and the sympathy of Christ. These things are not natural to unregenerate men. They're given by grace. As deacons care and serve God's flock, they need the Spirit's power. So good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom, or wise in the biblical sense of that term. It doesn't refer to practical skill or professional experience. Those things might be helpful, but you can find those in unbelievers. The deacon needs godly discernment and a sound Christian judgment. He has to be a man who delights in and gives obedience to God's word. First and foremost, the fear of the Lord, says the psalmist, is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. That's true wisdom as the Bible defines it. The fear of the Lord. And it must be found in a deacon. It's not the result of academic achievement or business savvy or common sense, as the man on the street would understand it. Job says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And such childlike reverence is given as a gift from God who bestows grace. So he who is entrusted with the care of God's lambs and the stewardship of God's money must be wise. Those are the kind of good men whom the early church elected and ordained. Luke identifies them by name. And what's significant to me is that all seven names are Greek. They're Greek. Hellenists. The Hebrews had no selfish motives in serving. They entrusted this important responsibility to the Greek-speaking Jews. All the widows would be protected and provided for by these men. So with prayer and the laying on of hands, they ordained them to office. And look at the result. The work of the church kept bearing fruit. It says the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So they worked together. The church flourished. The organization was more efficient. The evangelism was more efficient. And the spirit even drew to Christ Jewish priests who had embraced the faith. Do you realize that's one of the gospel's greatest triumphs? The Jewish priests were the most vigorous opponents of the spread of Christianity, and yet God in his mercy and sovereign grace transformed the most stubborn of sinners. So I think as we consider this passage, first of all, let's give thanks to God for the great blessing and benefit of godly deacons. That's right on the surface of the text. The work to which they're called in the church is a glorious task. It's based upon the loving concern that Jesus has for his people. Jesus regards what is done to the least of his brothers as done to himself. And there will be rewards in heaven, we're told, for sympathy and service to the saints. 
So deacons are appointed as official agents of the work of mercy. If not for them, the spread of the gospel would have been hindered. Because God appointed them, the church was far more efficient. And at Redeemer Church, here, we've been richly blessed with some excellent men. They help us better understand what it means to sympathize and serve. The Bible says that our great high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Think of that. Isn't it a wonderful expression of his divine mercy that he knows our frame? And is it not a great comfort to know that our king is sympathetic to our needs? We know this from the inspired word, and we see this from the appointed deacons. They've been ordained as flesh and blood examples of mercy. God uses them in so many ways. They've done an excellent job for us in maintaining and updating our facility as our elder prayed this morning. They faithfully collected and dispersed the weekly collection, week after week. They've served in so many ways, helping and counseling others. And let's not forget how they've set for us an example of godliness. It has been a necessary part of the health and well-being of this church, and they give us reason for gratitude. The Bible says expressly that there is a reward, even in this life, for their service. Paul says those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And in so many ways, their godly wives have been of invaluable service. Working behind the scenes, often unnoticed, they've served the saints. They've helped us through their prayers, their expressions of kindness, their support of their husbands. I think they would all agree with me that they would not be half the men they are without their wives. So let's learn to appreciate, I think, the diaconate as a reflection of Christ's own mercy. Do you realize that God extends mercy to all and yet he extends mercy not alike to all? That is to say, the mercy he extends to his people is very special and unique. Thomas Watson puts it this way, the wicked have sparing mercy, the godly have saving mercy. Do you see the difference? The unbeliever during his lifetime is spared much of what he deserves. Final judgment is delayed, of course. The Lord gives him life and family and food and work. That's mercy, but it is small in comparison to the mercy that's given to the believer. The Christian in this life is freely forgiven, fully accepted and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in the life to come, he is spared from the punishment that he or she deserves. That makes way for eternal life. Never-ending blessedness in heaven. Such mercy, I think, is too wonderful for mere mortals to fully appreciate. You remember Asaph? Here was an Old Testament believer who was troubled over the unbeliever's prosperity. Lord, you're blessing them, and I'm suffering. And his troubles continued until he went into the sanctuary 
And as he was led to think of their ultimate fate, his thinking was realigned. The rich mercy of God far outweighed the temporal pleasures of life. And as believers, you and I both know that Jesus can show mercy toward the worst of sinners. Look at the Apostle Paul. He calls himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And then he tells Timothy, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. You know, Jesus had not only a body to sacrifice, but he has a tender heart to extend mercy. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And he who plants mercy in the heart of man has more mercy than all men combined. The whole reason that he assumed human nature was that he might spare us from death. That's mercy. Because he's merciful, God made him a propitiation for the sins of the people. And so God forgives us, accepts us, spares us from the punishment we deserve. And as Ernie read earlier, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And to illustrate divine mercy, he chose men who've experienced mercy. Deacons in the church are taken from among sinners who've been redeemed. Isn't that a wonderful way for God to illustrate one of his attributes? As the deacons point us to Christ, let's rejoice over the richness of God's mercy. What kind of significance must be attached to an office that displays mercy? Our deacons are singled out and formally ordained to illustrate God's mercy. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God told him he was a merciful being. And he said this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is one of the great questions that press in upon the thoughts of mankind in general. They ask, is God a merciful God? Will he extend mercy? What's going to happen to me? It's not revealed in creation. It's not revealed in the law. It's not revealed in his all-embracing providence. You can't find that out in those things. So the natural man is left to wonder unless he consults with the Bible, which he doesn't do. But as Shedd observes, among the philosophers, the fears of justice far outnumber the hopes of mercy. Many of those ancient philosophers were more certain that God would punish sin than he would ever pardon it. Shed says, this is the reason that there is no light or joy in any of the pagan religions, because a natural man can be certain that God is just, but he is uncertain if God is merciful. So unless the Lord himself says, I will forgive, no man knows if he is forgiven. Justice is necessary. Mercy is optional. God must punish. He may forgive. 
And this is why we may expect mercy only and precisely in the terms that he has set forth. He says that he extends mercy according to his sovereign good pleasure. I will have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. He must punish sinners, but he's not obligated to forgive anybody. And as a sovereign, he has a right to say who he'll pardon and how he'll do it. So what is the method by which and the conditions upon which he will extend mercy? Forgiveness of sins is offered in Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain. God forgives through a sacrifice that fully satisfies all the demands of justice. Because we're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no mercy, no forgiveness of sins. So according to strict justice, the sinner must be sentenced to endless misery. But if those just requirements are met, then mercy can be offered to believers. So God offers terms of mercy through his Son in whom we trust. And it's only through his Son. Because there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So here's the deal. You can receive mercy through him, or you can take justice through the law. Which do you prefer? God not only sets the terms, but he also fixes the limits within which mercy can be extended. He will forgive sin if we repent and believe today. But there's no guarantee of tomorrow. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So sinners are invited to repent toward God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And Isaiah says that in such a case, God will abundantly pardon. But you know something? As I read the scriptures, I'm led to believe that there comes a point in the life of each person in which that door of mercy is shut. The sinner continues in his sin and refuses to trust in Christ. And we're told by divine authority that then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. So the person dies. His spirit returns to the God who gave it. And there is no redemption. And throughout all the ages of eternity, he will suffer endless punishment. That's not me, that's scripture. Jesus himself describes the awesome scene at the final judgment. This is what he says. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Isn't that enough to convince everyone that today is the day of salvation. But at this point, let's dwell upon the richness of that mercy which deacons are aimed to illustrate. Paul says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. 
And I ask you, what does it mean to say that God who is infinite is rich in mercy? What does that mean? He's infinite. There's no limit to his mercy. There's no boundary to the way he extends it. Like all the rest of his perfections, his mercy is as great as himself. So as we're about to sing, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins there are many, his mercy is more. It's sufficient because it extends to and covers all the sins of God's children. Though your sins be many, it makes no difference to his mercy. The psalmist says, forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity. Though your sins are heinous, grievous, in mercy God forgives them all. Because though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's sufficient. And his mercy is extensive as he embraces all truly penitent sinners without exception. Jesus points this out when he says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that one of the most glorious words in Scripture? Whoever. It makes no difference who you are. I don't care what gender you are, what color, what age, what position you have in society. It makes no difference. Whoever comes to him, he'll never cast out. And his mercy is lasting because it's not merely till death, but into the far reaches of eternity. It says in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end. They never fail. Mercy never runs out. And that's why the believer will never be consumed, because God never changes. And thus Paul says that our God is rich in mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Once a year on the Day of Atonement throughout the Old Testament, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to atone for sins, and he pictured this mercy of God. The ultimate sacrifice, the heavenly intercession of Christ was prefigured. So in closing, let me ask you this question. How significant is the office designed to exemplify this mercy of God? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for not only the deacons which point us toward your mercy, but the mercy itself that you extend through Christ in forgiving our sins and sparing us from all that we deserve. Help us to sing praise with joy and gratitude in our hearts, for we ask this in Jesus' name. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at redeemerohio.org.